several weeks ago, um, the, the terms transactional grace began to kind of roll around inside of me. And it would happen at just weird times. It's, I mean, it wasn't necessarily during quiet time. It just like different times of the day. I would just kind of hear this word transactional grace. And um, I'm like, well, that's strange. Transactional grace. What does that mean? And I think the Lord was trying to speak to me. Son, there's something you need to be aware of in your heart and in your life that you need to deal with. And it's a concept. It's not a sin. Typically, when you hear a little preamble like there's something you need to deal with, you go, what am I doing? There's some sinful habit or something. And this is like, this is, this is a concept. This is an attitude you need to hone. You need to fine-tune in your life. And so I went kind of back and forth because transactional grace sounds like really complicated. And not to mention the sermon title, The Impotence of Transactional Grace. That sounds really complicated. Like, what are you even talking about right now? So let's just break it down. Impotence is simply the inability to take effective action or helplessness. Um, if, if, If you're in your backyard and the tree cracks and a branch falls down to the ground, you're probably not going to stop that thing. You, you just stand by and hope that it doesn't hit anything. You are impotent in that moment to really do anything but just wait and see what happens. Transactional means the expectation that if one gives, one will receive. In other words, whatever we desire, we must work for to get. That's kind of where we live, right? All of us, pretty much every day. Grace is, by a biblical definition, free, unmerited favor from God. Now, if you're thinking through this and you're not daydreaming yet, you're going out, wait, wait, Mark. Transactional grace is an oxymoron. Those two things can't go together. That's right. They they can't. And I think that's what the Lord was trying to press into me because we're, we're familiar with the concept of grace and the concept of faith. We're familiar with the concept of transactional, but what we sometimes don't realize is we tend to live with those together in our, in our walk with the Lord, and it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't, and we're going to explore that. Two passages we're going to look at, Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 10 and Galatians 2 and 3. If you want to turn to those two spots and just Kind of keep your fingers there in your Bible, Hebrews 10 and Romans. I want to say Romans. Maybe we'll be in Romans for the end of the sermon, but don't turn there yet. Um, Galatians 2 and 3. So, how many of you like buy stuff on Amazon? Okay, how many of you opened the app in the last day or so? What does it say? What's the first banner that comes up? What's, what's tomorrow? Prime Day. Wow. So make sure to log on Amazon and get all the great deals, right? And then, of course, there's Black Friday, right? And Cyber Monday, right? I mean, all these things our culture says, this is a great time for you to get a great deal, for you to get a, have a good transaction for a, a least amount of expense. And so what do we all do? Well, on Monday, probably some of us are going to go, yeah, I've been waiting to get this. I'm going to get it today because I'll save some money. Or we go to some of us. I try to avoid this, but some of us, true confession, how many of you are at Walmart first thing on Black Friday? 
you know, you're not going, okay, that's okay. I'm not going to call you out on that. So, and then, but people do, right? And I think I've only done that once in my life, and that was enough. And then, of course, there's Cyber Monday, and I do confess, I kind of look for that. Because I want a great deal, right? That's how we think of a great deal. I got a great deal on this car. Or, or here's the good one, right? Someone's driving like a, a really expensive, really nice car. Like, yeah, you know, I, it's really nice. Like they're apologizing. I just got such a good deal on it. It was just like only $40,000 more than this other car I was looking at, but it was good. So I just got it. I, you know, so and I minimize it, right? It's like, dude, just say I bought a nice car. It's all good. Be honest, right? So, so this whole concept of transactional it's ingrained in us. And we, we think this way. How many of you who are in school study for that grade? Right? Some adults are raising your hand. Okay. Good. How many of you work because if you don't work, you, you won't get uh, money and you won't eat and you won't pay rent or mortgage and you won't live? So that's what we do, right? Uh, so here's bottom line. After man's fall in the Garden of Eden, our existence became transactional. This is the essence of the curse God placed upon Adam. Listen to what we find in Genesis. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There it is. Our very survival on this planet depends upon the work of our hands. We give, we get. We reap, we sow. We work, we eat. American society, being the dominant capitalistic world power for nearly a century, is perhaps the most transactional culture the world has ever seen. And believers, that's you and I, who live in the United States, we must strive to continually understand where the Bible stands on human cultural values. So after the garden, centuries go by. And a remarkable thing happens. A man was given instructions by the Lord to leave his country and go to a land that the Lord would show him. Who was that? Yeah, and his remarkable story begins. The high point of Abraham's story is when God promises to make him the father of many nations. So, so it's kind of like he, he gave him some directives and was gauging Abraham's obedience. And then at some point in the journey, he made a covenant with Abraham and said, I will make you the father of many nations. What was Abraham's response to God when God said that to him? Anyone? Call it out. Anyone? Well, his wife laughed when God told her she was going to bear a son. But you're, 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 that was like in the yellow ring, not quite the bullseye. This is one of the most important statements in all of Scripture, people. You should know this one. And Abraham believed God, and it was accorded to him as righteousness. Now, that one, that one you know, Caleb has been a long time since so he's talked about throw pillow verses. 
I mean, that's like the verse of all verses. That one should be like foremost in our... That, that, that verse is what Christianity hinges upon. And I'm going to show that to you. Let's go forward through history. Abraham's son and grandson, Isaac, Jacob, the captivity in Egypt, Moses rescued by Pharaoh's daughter as a baby, and in turn rescuing the Israelites from their bondage as an old man or older man. The amazing experience at Mount Horeb where we see God's law given to the Israelites, which, by the way, was also transactional in nature. The law was a complex system of if-then conditions. How many of you guys have read Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Oh, good job. That's a, that's, those are tough books to kind of get through. I mean, you've got to really just kind of invest in them. Godly men and women throughout the ages, up until the, the time of Jesus, tried to be faithful to God's law and order their lives by it. And they all, to a person, failed. All except one. And who was that? Yeah, that was Jesus. When Jesus came along, he turned everything upside down. The writer of Hebrews explains it like this. Let's go to that chapter 10 in Hebrews, verse 1. For since the law, now this is the law we were just talking about that was transactional in nature. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, uh, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I, Jesus said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, the writer of the Hebrews explains, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I've come to do your will. Remember? God said to Abraham, Get up and go to a land that I'm going to show you. So so we see a connection there. I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he is perfected, here it is, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Say after me, I am being sanctified. We've not arrived. We are being sanctified. 
Everything changed with Jesus. For this reason, being in Christ or born again means the manner in which we live in relationship to God is, get this, no longer transactional. Up until the cross, all they had was the law, which as we just read was a shadow. It was a forecasting. Once Christ came, everything changed. It wasn't transactional anymore. Think about that. What does that mean? A fundamental shift took place. So here it is. Here's what it means. There's nothing we can do, no feat we can accomplish that will earn us a place in God's unshakable eternal kingdom. There's nothing we can do. It's already been done. And you might say, well, of course, I, I get that. I, Jesus died for me. He was perfect. I'm not. And I've accepted his sacrifice, and he's my Savior. Sure, but do we live that way? That's a harder question. So we're going to explore that. One might think that we'd grasp this good news and eagerly follow after it, which Christ followers do. Yet for more than two millennia, both within and outside the church, the central truth of this gospel remains veiled for many who are motivated by the desire to somehow measure up. And don't say, don't say, well, Mark, I'm, I'm, that doesn't motivate. I don't, I'm not interested in measuring up to anyone. All of us are. All of us are. All of us, at some point, in some way, somehow, in some circumstance, want to measure up. This is problematic because the grace that sent Jesus to the cross was not, is not, and will never be transactional. We can't barter or negotiate for it. We can't work for it or earn it. All we can do is accept it by allowing the Holy Spirit to begin his work in us, shaping us, that's the sanctification piece, into the image of Jesus Christ, putting God's laws in our hearts and in our minds. It sounds simple, right? And it is simple, but it's really hard. It's difficult because of the fact that the inclination to sin still resides in our bodies. I'm going to say that again. That's really, really, really important. The inclination to sin still resides in our bodies. You get that. that that's not new. You've heard that a bunch of times if you've been at Buffalo City Church for any length of time. What, what you might miss is this. This inclination towards sin creates a constant, constant tension that the Christ follower is forced to live with. And it's uncomfortable. Most, if not all, of Christ followers throughout history have attempted to sidestep this tension by recreating a system of personal do's and don'ts. It always leads to trouble. So the tension, the tension. In our flesh, we see this inclination to sin but the work of the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, and there is a tension. There is a tension that's uncomfortable. We don't like it. It's, it's a battle. It's a war. We rage it. And sometimes, to mitigate it, we embrace a system that brings us into problematic situations. This is what the Galatians did. 
See, Paul had established some churches in the area of the region of Galatia and had visited it three times during his missionary journey. He invested pretty heavily into these believers. And um, ha- having you know, written letters and spent time and shared the gospel and preached and just poured into these folks. But somewhere along the way, they became swayed by the idea that in some way, some fashion, our relationship with God has to be transactional, and they began to reintroduce elements of the Hebraic law. When the Apostle Paul became aware of this, his response was sharp. And he reminds the Galatians that in order to follow Christ, one must grasp that we are justified by faith through grace. Now, it's so easy to look at Scripture, hindsight, right, which is always twenty twenty, and like, yeah, what were the Galatians thinking? I mean, what on earth? Okay, how many times have you or I made a deal with God and said, oh, shoot, I missed it again. Well, I'll just do this, and, and then I'll do this, and we compensate, or we try to compensate, and, and, and then it, but nothing happens. And... In this compensating, we, we become unwieldy in relationship because we're trying to behave in a way that is inconsistent with what Christ is doing in us. And we all have this inclination. Now, let's see how Paul explains it, and let's take these concepts out of these passages. Uh, if you look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, Let's explore this concept of we are justified by faith. Now, remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends, these individuals, these believers in Galatia, who he's been discipling and mentoring. And maybe just to give a little background, um, there there were some folks that came into these churches, uh, and as they began to say, hey, you know, Paul, we love him and everything, but yeah, he's out there. And and there are some things he just didn't tell you. And, And yeah, we get his credentials, but there's this other piece that for some reason he just left out, and you need to know this. And they were swayed by whatever it was, and because it felt good, they were like, yeah, that makes sense, because then I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm doing something like to, to kind of make this right with God. And um, Paul takes the first couple of chapters of Galatians to remind them who he was, uh, how God had called him, how he came into ministry, remind him of his, of his time with them, until we get to verse 15 in chapter 2, and he really begins to explain, uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth, talking, including all of them, and not Gentile sinners. That would resonate with them, because here's this group of believers trying to embrace elements of the Hebraic law against. They'd go like, well, yeah, that's good. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Right. We're We're not Gentiles. Yet, he goes on, we know that a person isn't justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, which is what happens. He says, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, we're supposed to be born again, but yet we're still sinning. Does that make that Christ is subservient to sin, is stronger than Christ? He says, certainly not. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ. So that little verse there bears a little explanation. For if I rebuild what I tore down, he's talking about them trying to reintroduce the law into their lives. And if you're sitting here at this point going, I'm not Jewish, and I get the law, and the law has some good things, but I've never tried to do the law, just hang on, be patient. It's going to hit home in a few minutes, so stay with me here. And then it comes to a verse that is one of my life verses. I mean, this has been one of the verses that I constantly remind myself. It's like, and Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. It's like that verse. And it's this. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. Wait, what? What do you mean? Well, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So now we have to take a closer look at the Galatians. And Paul begins to talk, does, does, does the redemptive process take place by faith or by works of the law. And I have to believe that Paul, in whatever idiom of his day, has got to be like, are you kidding me? You know, after all I've invested into you guys, are you really there in this place? He says, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? having begun by the Spirit that you're now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as, and here's that verse again, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. There you go. There's the promise. So that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that's how it impacts all of us. That's how that statement in Genesis where Abraham believed God and it was accorded to him as faith. That's how through history that impacts all of us. That, that, was, that was the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he goes on to explain how the righteous, or I might say those who are involved in the sanctification process, through the blood of Jesus, by faith, made righteous before God. So let's qualify that a little bit. The righteous shall live by faith. So we're at chapter 3, verse 10 now. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Which, of course, is impossible. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the, law, the one who does them shall live by them. 
In other words, it is transactional in nature. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? This is you and me, folks, the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Transactional grace, that oxymoron, that thing that really can't exist, but sometimes we like to pretend that it can. Transactional grace never requires faith on our part, which is the reason for its impotence. It just doesn't work. It can't work. When we think of our relationship with God as transactional, whether we admit it openly or not, we step outside the boundaries of faith and create a barrier in our attitude toward God, in our attitude toward fellow believers, and other people in general. The barrier in our attitude toward God keeps us striving for a standard we will never reach. The barrier towards fellow believers causes us to expect more from them than they are capable of giving. And the barrier towards other people in general make us bereft of compassion or, even worse, leads to a sense of entitlement on our part that is brutish and self-centered. This is where the Pharisees were, some of them to a large degree, and why Jesus was so torqued at their attitude. Because, you know, they, they thrived on doing all this stuff, and yet... What did Jesus say to him? You know, you take your disciples and you make them twice as fit for hell as you are yourselves because of your attitude toward this thing. So, conclusion. Um, last October, we adopted two golden retrievers. Their names are Ruthie and Annie. And some of you have seen them. They're delightful. Um... Monday a week ago, two weeks ago, I guess now, I drove almost 1,200 miles in one day with both of those dogs in the car. And they were great. And people look at me and go, how did you do that? They were great. They ate the back of Julia's escape, literally ate it. But, but um, it's her car, so that's good. So no, I'm teasing. <laughs> she said, you better fix that. I said, I will. So, um, and actually, it wasn't that bad. They ate the mat, and they ate the seat belts. So, but that's what they do, right? And if you go into our yard, you'll see there are these little holes. And I've been really vigilant with these puppies. And they're nine months old and almost 10 months old now. And they're just, they're like, they're like teenagers. And they're just at that age when they know what they shouldn't do. And all you have to do is look at them. And, and they just like, they give you that, 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 that look, right? Like, oh, no, he caught me. So, um, so several, because we have two of them, and let me just tell you, when you have two golden retrievers, it's not double the excitement. It's exponential, the excitement. It's like, it's because they play off of each other, right? And I decided, I'd done some research, you know, because it has been years since we'd had a dog, and I did, did some research, and I found... And actually, my son, Philip, who preached a few Sundays ago, said, hey, Dad, there's this thing called a shock collar. I'm like, really? What does that do? He says, well, it's a training device. And there are three different modes with it. You can beep. You put it, it's a collar. You can beep. And then it'll vibrate. And then it'll shock. Um, I said, well, that, 
that sounds like that could work. So I got a couple of these training collars, these shock collars for Annie and Ruthie. And, you know, when I go to get them, they just come up to me and nuzzle me. They're all good with it. They just, you know, and I, what I found is the shock, it doesn't work with them. I can, and they just like, what? I, it's like, I don't know. So, um, but the, the vibrate, the little vibrator thing, they hate that. They hate that feeling of that vibrating. They're like, what? And, and so, and, and the thing is, is that I don't ever have to use the vibrator or the shock because what happened is there's a beep mode and, and that beep um, immediately, they're just like, all they hear is that beep. Oh, and they're, they're like different dogs. And like, I'll take them for a walk. And I've learned if I don't take the shock collar, they drag me all over our neighborhood. But all I have to do is put it on, and guess what? They, they just walk right by me, and if one happens to get a little rambunctious, I just beep, and she just comes right back. I'm not really doing anything. And in fact, last night, they didn't even have their shot collars on. I'm sitting there, and I said, Ruthie, lay down. And she just looked at me. And Annie, of course, laid down immediately. Ruth, and Ruthie is our, like, strong-willed child, right? And so she just looked at me. I said, Ruthie, lay down. She just looked at me. I said, Ruthie, and I picked up the TV remote control. It wasn't even the remote, and she laid down. <laughs> so, right? It was like crazy. And so, and so I'm thinking, God, well, I would just love to have a shot collar <laughs> so that whenever I was going to get off track a little bit, you could just go beep and remind me. Unfortunately, we don't have shot collars, but we have something better than a shot collar. If we're determined enough to spend time to invest in it and learn to understand it. And it's not a thing, it's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And when we're in that place where we're just getting ready to get into trouble, the Holy Spirit will check us. And if we're sensitive to that, because God don't want to put a shot collar on us. He's not going to do that. It's like, what, going to hit you when you're going to do something wrong? No, we're not. We're, we're, we're created for relationship. But make no mistake, the Holy Spirit will nudge us. And when he does, we better learn to pay attention to that thing. As I've said before, we're all tempted to embrace transactional grace from time to time. A lot of times, we do this when things seem to be going really well, or we appear to have, all, have it all together. Because that, that's where the enemy hits us, where we're like, oh, this is great, and all of a sudden we're blindsided by something. It's then we can easily forget that our lives are not our own, but that we've been bought with a price, and they belong to the one who purchased us with his blood. So, Mark, how do I do that? How, 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 do I, how do I put, how do I attune myself to the power of the Holy Spirit in my walk and in my life so that when temptation comes, before it's even there, he, I'm warned. He nudges me. Three things. And you've heard this all before. It's nothing new. Spend time regularly, daily if possible, studying the Bible and meditating on Scripture and praying. I'm mildly concerned. I, 
I, I expected that when I asked the question, when God made the covenant with Abraham, what was Abraham's response? I expected two or three people to say, and Abraham believed God, and it was accorded to him as righteousness. I'm mildly concerned that that hugely important little phrase in, in Genesis 9, like deer in the headlights, I don't know. That's huge. There is a treasure trove of the miraculous hand of God throughout the scripture. But most of us are okay with the Psalms. And we like to read a Psalm because it's like, oh, I love God. And most of us are pretty familiar with the Gospels, the life of Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. We'll read about him in John. And, and then if we are a little more diligent, we're like, okay, I'll, 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 read, I'll read Acts because that was pretty cool. They like they healed people and stuff. And we had this, these things that apostles were doing. And if you go a little farther, you know, you, you might read the Corinthians. Oh, it's got that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 on love. I just love that chapter. I'll read that one. And then if, if, you're, if you're really, like, moving ahead, you're like, I'm going to tackle Romans. And most of the time we get to the book of Romans and we go, I don't know what he's talking about right now. And, and that's just the book of Romans. I mean, it's, it's weighty. It's heavy. You have to spend time on it. And once we get past that, you know, we'll read letters to, you know, like the Galatians and the Ephesians and, you know, the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And then we'll read Paul's letters to Timothy, and there's good stuff in there, I think. What, what I've been doing for years, and I'm just about done. It's, it's taken me a little over a year to do this. I, 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 I buy a Bible, blank, blank, completely blank, and I outline it, outline it from the beginning to the end all the way through. And um, sometimes I'll go fast and do several chapters a day. This time I did, I, I, started, I started in three spots. I started in Genesis 1, in Psalm 1, and in Matthew chapter 1. And I just did a chapter or two a day. And I've been doing it for about a year. And, and it's taken this, this parallel journey through Scripture every day in those three spaces, places. It is amazing what you learn. And that, this is maybe the seventh or eighth time I've done this. I've got a whole stack of Bibles on my shelf. And, and disclaimer, I mean, I'm not, I'm like, this is what works for me. I'm not saying you should go out and buy a Bible every year and read through it. What I am saying is you should educate yourself. Um, if you bought a car, you probably learned how to operate it. If you bought an iPad, you probably learned how to install apps and how to use it. You know, whatever your job is, you probably trained to learn how to do that thing. How on earth can we profess to be Christ followers, born again, called of God, being sanctified, and yet we don't know anything about what we're supposed to be, you know, be in this process? Well, it's all right there. It's all laid out in front of us, and you just have to take the time to do it. That was one. Two. Develop close, gospel-centered relationships with other believers for encouragement and accountability. And no, I'm not talking about Facebook. Okay? I'm talking about face-to-face, one-on-one, sitting down, just relationships. 
people who will see your life, and then when there's something that's odd, they'll look at you because you've given permission because you're in a relationship, and you're given them permission like that. What's going on? Are you? That looks odd to me. Are you aware of this? But that works both ways. Um, a lot of times, and this is probably maybe a little more true in the upper Midwest just because of our North Dakota nice thing, and we typically hate confrontation. See, I'm from the South, and people in the South, they thrive on confrontation. But up here, it's like, no, 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 no. So, uh, and, and so there's all this passive-aggressive stuff that goes on that just irritates me to no end, but there you go. Um, so uh, conversely, it's like, well, I'm, my friends are free to speak into my life at any time. Great. So are you close to someone that you've observed and seen some things? And you're like, what's happening? And you've had opportunity to say something to them, but you haven't. Well, I'm afraid I might offend them. I can't, I can't say that. Oh, you better. Because, see, the Holy Spirit might be using you in your life to influence that person and actually help them, as hard as that might seem to you. Now, you've got to use tact. I mean, right? You don't want to just, like, blast somebody and make them feel horrible. But you know what I'm talking about. These are the types of gospel-centered relationships that will help to create and foster this, this nudging, which will protect us from the impotence of transactional grace. Thirdly, stay deeply connected to a local church body. And, and folks, and I'm so grateful for Buffalo City Church because I think on a national average, we're, we're probably above the bar. This can't happen through a YouTube video. And like, if you're at home right now and you're watching this and you could be here, dude, seriously, you need to be here next Sunday, right? If you can't be here, that's okay. Uh, God still loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But next week, you're here. Don't sit at home watching the worship service from a, from a YouTube when you could get up and be in church. It's not the same. It's not the same. Um, that was one of the worst things pandemic did. My mom attends a church in, in Georgia. has been going there for years and years. And um, pre-pandemic, it ran a couple of thousand on Sunday morning. Do you know there's still only four or 500 people come on Sunday morning? And that's happening all that's happened all over the it's happened in this town. It happens all over it's happened all over the country. Church attendance pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. Personally, I think it is not an unhealthy thing. It could be one of the ways that the spirit of God is is working through the church and 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 um trying to cleanse it and make sure that those who are there really want to be there. Um, if you'll go back to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to finish up with these five verses in verse 19 where we left off earlier. This is a passage the Hebrew wrote to encourage us, to give us assurance. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. 
for he who promised is faithful. The impotence of transactional grace impacts our lives when we step into sinful behavior or attitudes and we do nothing to try to mitigate those. But instead, we, and this can be subconsciously, we form a, a, a scale, a, a weight system, and go, well, yeah, but I'm doing this, so, so God will kind of overlook this other stuff. I mean, I'm serving in this area, in this area, in this area. I know I have a problem with anger, but that's okay, because I do all this other stuff. Folks, all of us do it. We all do that. We all justify sin by making excuses for it because there's some other area that we feel really good about ourselves in, and I've got this. But we can't. Sin is sin. And now there's another piece to that, okay? So don't get too upset with me yet. There's another piece to that. Remember that the flesh, this life that we live in our bodies, there, there's an inclination to sin which creates a tension that we will not escape from until we step into life. Most people call that death. I call it stepping into life because when these bodies die, that's when we begin to live. And that's when we will be completely free to obey in full without, without anything hindering us. But until then, we're, we're in this flesh and we're going to have to grapple with the tension. We have to fall into the grace of God and receive it when, when sin comes and when temptation comes. And when we yield to it and when we fall into it, yeah, it can't make excuses for it. We continue to fight it. Which brings me to the very last verse. You don't have to turn there. It's in verse 1 Timothy, chapter 6. And Paul's writing to Timothy. It says, but as for you, I'm going to talk to you guys. As for you, O man or woman of God, flee these things. Flee sin. Flee the things that will, that will bind you, that will, that will trip you. Instead, pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And you might say, well, what is the good? Why? Fights aren't good. Why, is it, why does he say fight the good fight of faith? That's because it's a fight. We'll win. A good fight is the one you win, right? And we will win if we don't give up. So, and that's the last piece of this. When you fall, when you sin, when you go into that area once again for the thousandth time, you're going, I can't believe I did that again. Just confess it. Repent. Be accountable to someone. And continue to fight and say, God, I missed it again. You know I don't want to do this Forgive me, continue to work in me, continue to give me understanding and light about this, what's happening uh, when I fall into it, and help me in that moment to call upon you. Our God saves. Our God saves. Mourning turns into joy. Our God saves. It's in those moments that he saves. Let's pray together.